Irvine campus in our chapel there, and um, very fun to come down here and be at the Mission Viejo campus. Um, really good to be back here, um, and you know, so next, next week is the talent deal, it's Mission, Mariners Mission Viejo's talent, that's happening next week, and that's when you're going to do your Michael Jackson impression, it's going to be killer, Tim. So anyways, a lot of people looking forward to that, um, but great things happening here, always really good to be here. So um, we are in the middle of a series that um, has been really cool for me as a teacher to see people responding to it in so many cool ways. Um, people, this is a look at the book of Ephesians, a letter by a guy named Paul to the, um, to the early church. Um, right over here, you guys, right up, you can come right over, right over. <laughs> letter by a guy named Paul to the early church into these, these, these churches in and around this ancient city of Ephesus. And he's writing about, he spends three chapters of his letter, which the letter isn't broken up initially into chapters, it is later on, but the three chapters of the letter just about who people are. And if you've been with us throughout the series, you've heard Mike or perhaps someone else who's spoken here talk about that in the first three chapters of the letter, there's only one command, and that is to remember. And Paul goes on to talk about who people are, and this has been the coolest thing for me as a teacher to have people say, I had no idea God saw me that way as one of his own children or as his dwelling place or as a masterpiece um, created to do good. No one, I mean, everybody's kind of kind of been surprised by that. It's been really cool. And then in chapter 4, the, 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 the letter begins to take a, a turn and begins to tell people how to live out of their identity. And so we're in the second half of this series. And I would say, if you, you didn't hear any of the beginning stuff, I would say, you know, go on, on the Mariners webpage, you know, sign up for the podcast, hear what Mike has to say in the beginning parts of the series. So at least you get an idea of how we're living out of what identity. But it's been very, very cool. And um, hopefully today is more of the same kind of thing for you as you begin to understand how God sees you, how God loves you, and um, how God wants to utilize you in your identity to do great and cool works um, in his image. Okay, so let's, um, let's do this. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Jesus, we thank you that you are already in our midst. That we are not praying that you would be here. We're praying, God, that you would reveal yourself in a way to us that we might um, take notice of. Jesus, we pray that as we listen to your own words, as we consider who you've created us to be, as we think about our identity, as we think about you and your great love for us, God, would you move in such a way that we can only attribute it to you? God, as we think about our own lives, and as we think about this time and in this place, God, would you do something in us that when we would leave here, we'd be different because of what you do in us, through us today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, well, just to kind of give you somewhere, Ephesians chapter 5, if you brought a Bible, great, you want to open up to right there. You also might want to, if you're really advanced, if you have one of those handy ribbon things or a piece of paper, you might want to throw a little marker in John as well, John chapter 13, but we'll get that to that in a little bit. But, um, but to get kind of started, um, I want to back up just a little bit. We're going to start with verse 21, but I want to back up a couple verses before that just to give us a little context. If you were here last week, you heard these verses talked about in, um, in any of the sort of the Mariners' venues. But here's, here's um, just kind of what that looks like, starting verse 18. Paul says this to the church. Do not get drunk on wine, which really means don't, get, don't, have, don't, take, don't have anything in kind of excess, really, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says, there is a way in which we're going to live. It will be this way that falls under a sort of umbrella or a banner of being filled with the Spirit. 
And there might be excesses in everything else, but there is no excess to be had. There's no prohibition into how much you can be filled with the Spirit. And this is where we start. And this is, it's really important that we catch this when we go into today's sort of, sort of conversation. So Paul says, go to each other and speak to each other and sing to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then he says this in verse 21. Here's where we are today. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, if, you know, if you're, if most of us have an impression about what submitting is. I have um, a friend, you know, whenever, anytime your buddy says that they know a famous person, you're always like, okay, well, you went to their website and you sent them a little contact form. I'm now your biggest fan. Or you like them on Facebook or whatever, and now they're your friend. I mean, really? And he's like, no, no, seriously, this guy's my, my friend. And he's a, my, and I said, well, who's, who is this guy? He says, well, he's uh, this He's kind of climbing the ranks in the MMA, you know, UFC kind of world. In fact, there was a UFC fight last night. I don't know if you guys, I didn't see it. But anyway, this is, a, um, and so I said, well, who is this guy? He says, well, his name's Mark Munoz. Some of you guys might know him. He lives in Lake Forest. And I said, oh, okay. And so I said, okay, great. You know him. You guys are buddies. Sure you are. You know, whatever. So I go to, I, this is, true. I go to his, my, um, my buddy's mom's memorial service, his mom's funeral. And there is the world's buffest man I've ever seen in my entire life walking around. And it's not like he's, like, huge. He just is, like, you could tell that's the fittest person in every room that guy walks in, you know? And he, you could just tell he's, like, a little bit more, everything's a little, all this, you know, everything's a little bit. It's not like he's wearing his, like, wrestling singlet, you know, like, walking around, like. You could just knew. The guy was, like, that's the guy. Now, I see him, and I, remember, I'm at, a memori- I'm at a funeral. So I see him, and I have, so just hope. Hold that in your mind for a second, because to tell you this story that's about to happen, I have to tell you a previous story to have this make sense, okay? When I was a little kid, and, and maybe, maybe some of you have the same issue, but when I was a little kid, and it's still, it, embarrassingly, it's still present in my life today, I remember seeing, for the, like, in, early on, I remember seeing a police officer walk, I was a big fan of the show Chips, by the way. Anybody? <laughs> I can tell by the laughter, some of you are. And also fans. Um, but Chips, those of you guys who don't know, Chips is like motorcycle cops with disco music in the background. That's all that it was. And um, so to see a real live police officer was like a big deal. And the, there's, so I remember being like in a, any restaurant and seeing a police officer and having, you know, with the uniform and the gun on the side of their hip. And I remember thinking, I think I need to just take that gun out of their hip. Like, just imagining, and I knew even as a little kid, I knew, like, I knew, like, that's, that's probably not a wise decision. <laughs> like, you know, to go up there and just be like, you know, I just wanted to hold the gun just for a second. Could I just, just, well, you're ordering. Could I just wave this around a little, you know, like, and I know, and I knew that at some point, you know, it'd be like, you know, I'd have the cuffs on me and I'd be down on the floor, even as like a six-year-old, and it would be, you know, I'd be in jail and I'd have a face tattoo of a spider web and all this kind of, that would be like my story and I spent time in jail, you know, whatever. I tried to pull a gun from a cop. But I, and I always do. And I, I, even to this day, I, even as I was driving here this morning, there's a, a, sure enough, there's a guy, a motorcycle cop, Chips. And there he is right next to me. And there's this gun on the back, of the, on the back rack of the, the motorcycle. And I just thought, what if I just got out of my car at the stoplight and just, excuse me, officer, I just wanted to hold this for a second. You know, and there's all, there's just this, I don't know, I don't have any guns. I'm not a gun person. I don't have, my kids don't have BB gun. I, but there's something about, just, I just need to hold, I just want to see what would happen if I did this, okay? So I tell you that story to tell you this. So I'm at a funeral and in walks, you know, UFC fighter guy. I mean, this is a pretty brutal sport. And, and I just have this like, Remember, it's a funeral. It's like the saddest, you know, everyone's like crying. It's a sm- and I just want to go, try and see what happens, you know. I just want to take him down. And, you know, of course, 
So I did. Um, and um, no, I did. I'm just kidding. But I just had this like, I just need to, I need to see if he could really, is he really that awesome? And, and am I? Can I really do? And I know I'll probably just, I'll, he'll probably break my arm off and then beat me with it. But I just had to try. Because the, in the UFC, in the, in the, in, to win a UFC fight, some of you are like, I, I knew we didn't trust this guy. It's all right. I, I get it. I just, a little honesty here. But just out of curiosity, but anybody else have like that secret compulsion to try and take the whole gun? One other person. My brothers. Okay, good. Okay, good. You've never done it, but you just have the like, I wonder what happened. Okay, four of us. We'll, set, we'll start a support group. Um, but I'm at this, I, I'm at this um, memorial service, and I see this guy. And the way that, the way that UFC fighters, if you've never seen a UFC fight, it's, it's incredibly brutal. It's like Roman gladiator combat with, without swords. I mean, it's just like, it's crazy. And um, there's a couple of different ways you can win a fight. You can win a fight in basically five ways. One of them is to be disqualified because you do something illegal. But there's not much that's illegal in this, in this fighting sort of world. But you can knock someone out. Meaning you could just, you could punch them enough times. They look about like I do right now. You could do that enough times so where someone takes enough punches to the gut or to the head, you know, and they just get lights out, they're knocked out. Then you win. Okay, that's one way. You can win by a technical knockout, which once you kind of get over the brutality of the sport, which it does take a little while, but once you get over it and someone is kind of like either, either they're, they're so dazed, like they can barely keep their hands up, they're like, they're, they're fighters over here and they're kind of doing one of these, it's a little bit funny, you know, like they're walking around like, I can still fight, you know, you know, that's that, that there's a technical knockout where the referee will step in and go, <laughs> you can't fight. Or there's so much blood, or there's a gash, or so, it's like, you're done. He just calls it. Then... There's also what they do, just as sort of a decision, like a regular boxing. There's five rounds. They just go, you beat the other guy up more than, you know, than he beat up you, so you win. That's a decision. And the last way is this. If you place someone in, into such a level of kind of excruciating pain or under the threat of either loss of their own life or that they, um, they might actually have a, a limb broken or a joint snapped out of place, they can do what's called tapping out which means they just either tap the other guy who's like about to break their arm or their neck or whatever else, tap him, huh, all done, thank you, that's enough, no thank you, <laughs> that's enough, right? That's about how they say it too, it's kind of tough. Um, but anyway, uh, or you can tap the mat, which is to say, I'm about to die, I'm about to break my arm, let me out, let me out, that's all that, and the referee stops the fight and you win. If you tap out, what that says is, and, and we'll say that the winner won by submission, that under the supreme power of this one person, they force their will upon the other guy, and the other guy says, I submit, I have nothing else. I tap out, <laughs> game over, I'm done. Submission. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, sing songs and hymns and spiritual song, songs to each other. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Most of us, when we think about, we think about submitting, we imagine an act of supreme weakness where we have no more power, where we can't have any other option because there are no other options because the only other thing we could do is die or have an arm broken or be killed or whatever it is. When Paul uses the term submit here in verse 21, there are two basic sort of branches of this term. One is a military term. And the word submit is describing the people under the commanding authority of an officer. And the other term, the non-military usage of the term, is to just simply describe the carrying of somebody else's burden. But we have a tough time with the word submit. A really tough time. When we think about our own power, we think about our own influence, we think about our own lives, most of us do not think, how do I increase my level of submission today? And Paul says, be filled. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
And what Paul's doing here, throughout all of what he's writing to this early church, he's writing in such a way that their, their manner of life and living would be counter to everything else that's in their present world. In earlier in the, in the letter, he says, don't live like the Gentiles. Meaning the rest of the sort of non-Jewish world. Don't live like this other world. Don't live like them. There's another way we ought to live, and it starts with submitting to one another. And then Paul says something that seems strangely out of context with that idea of living counterculturally. Verse 22, check it out. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Stop right there. Paul's writing in a time in which all wives were already expected to be submit, sub, already expected to submit to their husbands. All men had authority over their wives. That's the, that's the, that is the way and the time, it's the way everything was sort of understood to be in this particular time and place. But then the question for us is this, why does Paul say it? Why does he repeat what everybody already knows? Why would he say, in a context where everybody already knows that wives submit to husbands, why would he say it again, unless there's something else going on here? Let's look at it closely. First is this, to look at this in, uh, in its Greek, in the Greek, the verse 22 does not have the word submit. It looks like this. Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. The word submit is not present in that verse. It's implied, and it's not incorrectly used, it's not incorrectly inserted there. It's just not present there. In other words, the whole notion of submitting wives to husbands falls under the everybody submits to each other, verse 21. That's the first thing that you wouldn't necessarily know. Secondly, in a time in which every man has power and influence over all women, if you're a man... Paul says, if you want to underline this in your own Bible, you might underline the word submit too if you have your own Bible. Just because it's not there, it's kind of interesting. But you also might underline this. To your own husbands. It's not just any old guy who walks by and says, I'm a man. Hey, you're a woman, you must listen to me. It says to your own husbands, which is kind of an interesting concept at this time. And Paul's a guy who writes in some of his other letters, he writes things that seem to do away with all the class distinctions between people, men and women. In, in Galatians he writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man nor woman. In Colossians he writes, in the third chapter of Colossians he writes something similar. There's no, we're all one in Christ. There's no, there, why does he say submit? Because maybe there's something about this kind of submission which is revolutionary. And it's sort of wrapped up in the last clause of that verse. As you do to the Lord. Which means, it isn't just, he doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands because that's just the way the world works. He says, wives, to your husbands as you do to the Lord. In other words, the kind of submission that people have, the early church, those who belong to Jesus, these people who are gathered or called the church, the kind of submission that they had to Jesus had to have been kind of unique because Paul is calling the wives to this kind of submission to their husbands. When people used the term in the ancient world, at the time of Jesus, when they used the term to describe a Lord, a Savior, the Son of God, it was about one person, Caesar. The official titles for Caesar are Lord, Son of God, Savior. He also gets titles that sound a lot like Prince of Peace. And the way Caesar exercised his authority is that he would 
wield his massive army, and he would say, I grant you peace so long as you don't oppose me or my army will destroy you. Do you accept the terms of peace? He had this massive army in which he could coerce anybody to submit to him under his authority because there was all this threat of death around you. Wow, that's wonderful. We could either die or we could just start paying 75% of our income to you, Caesar. You could build us a road, but we get to pay you taxes. Lord, Savior, Son of God. But Paul says about a different kind of Lord. This person, this sort of guy from a small town in a small outpost of the Roman Empire that nobody paid much attention to, he talks about that guy being the Lord. Only that guy, Jesus, didn't have an army. He didn't walk, he didn't coerce anybody by threat of death. He didn't have, this wasn't at his disposal, and so he had to simply say, do you want to follow me? People have tried to ascribe Jesus, given Jesus an army, or I should say this, they've sort of adopted Jesus as sort of, he's kind of commanded us to be, he sort of commanded us to build an army and take over things. It's not really worked well for the church in the past. But Jesus is not the same as Caesar. And when Paul is saying to the Lord, he's actually saying something that's incredibly countercultural. Everybody knows Caesar has power and he demands submission. And Jesus, these people have all gathered together to submit to him willingly. These aren't people who are under coercion going, gosh, if we don't, he'll bring his army in and kill us. They all said, it's worth it to us. Whatever he can offer us, we want it. We believe it's worth it. Which means wives are no longer submitting to husbands out of the threat of being hurt or wounded. It's because they choose, like they choose Jesus. Now, this is not something Jesus just simply said, you guys should do this. I'm going to go build an army. This is the way Jesus operated. He took the power structure, the prevailing sort of notions of what what meant to be sort of have authority or to have power, and he flipped it upside down. In fact, the people who followed Jesus were not known as Christians uh, until not, not for a couple years of having been met together. The way that they were described most often was this term, the followers of the way. There was something about the way that the people who gathered in Jesus' name that separated them out as operating differently than everybody else. And they followed the example of the one they called Lord, who wasn't Caesar. Look what it says in John 13, if you guys already marked it there. But you have this picture of Jesus on the night where he is um, about to, to he's, the night before he's going to die, this is his last supper. And I want you to see this, particularly in contrast when we talk about Caesar. Verse 3. John 13, verse 3 says this. Jesus knew, listen to what Jesus is aware of. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. Stop right there. Caesar is someone who is claiming power, taking power, seizing power, using his own military might to gain more power. In this place, what you have is Jesus being granted power by his father. He has been given, look, I'll read it again. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And for that reason, verse 4, he has all this power and authority for that reason. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped 
around him. Here's all the power over, over everything that has been given to Jesus. And what does he do? He takes on the sort of position, very literally, of the, of the least desirable slave in anyone's household. The one who washes the dirty feet. Because he has the power, he chooses to wash the feet. Because he's been granted everything, the, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, so he got up from the meal and put the, the towel around his waist and began washing the disciples' feet. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Verse 15. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus isn't merely saying, you guys ought to submit to each other because that will work out for you. What he's saying is, do it because I do it. I have every reason not to submit, and yet my life is a legacy. My whole death itself is a picture of submission and serving and inverting power structures. The way that the world will be changed, according to Jesus, isn't going to be by raising up an army and defeating and fighting. It will be by something totally revolutionary, which will be to serve, even to the point of death. That's the followers of the way. Verse 23, 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Sorry, this is in Ephesians, if you guys are still in John. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I um, should tell you a couple things. I am the only child of a single mom. And I should also tell you that um, this... My guess is that some of you read this, this passage right here, these two verses, and even the, even the last one I've been reading, verse 22. You actually have this experience of saying, I've been around husbands who forced me out of threat, either through like verbal, mental kind of whatever, or I've been around men who have used their own physical threats of physical coercion to get me to submit to them, and I have a hard time hearing this. And I just want to let you know, I, for as much as I'm able, I get it. I hope that as we talk about this, it will begin to help you understand what Paul's talking about here. But I get it. And this is a pretty challenging thing. I remember when I was, a, I was a freshman in high school, my English teacher went to a Catholic high school where I thought, you know, you sort of had to sort of agree with at least some of what the Catholic Church said. You know, that was sort of like what I thought the faculty would have to do. And I remember my English teacher saying to me, I refuse to read and I refuse to believe anything that that male chauvinist Paul, the apostle, says because of stuff like this. And she showed me this. And I was, I was like, oh, are you allowed to say that? <laughs> I don't know what the Catholic Church will do. You know, like, I don't, you know. So, and I thought, of course, my 14-year-old mind was like, well, then I could use that as blackmail if I don't get the grade up. You know, whatever, no. But hopefully as we read it, it'll begin to unpack a little bit about what, about what Paul means. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. In Greek physiology, there's sort of understanding of the human body. All life flowed from the head. In other words, the, the source of all life is the head. The way that the life is contained in the body and the way that it is distributed throughout the body is from the head. If you remember a couple weeks ago, if, you're a, if you want to mark or make a little note in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, same idea, Jesus is the head of the body. Same kind of idea. 
It doesn't mean the way we typically think about it. Like when we think about people who have the word head attached to their title, head coach, you know, head linesman, head of the revolution, or I don't know, head office, head of the class. These are people with whom they, they wield authority over other people, and those people are supposed to follow it because they say to do it. And I would say, for those of you who grew up playing sports, I wonder how many of our own lives would have been shaped differently had we had coaches who understood themselves to be the source of life rather than merely the commander. Paul says, wives submit to your husbands because Christ, because, he's the, because the husband is the head of the wife and Christ is the head of the church, which means he gives life to the body, gives life to his bride. In other words, the way Jesus is going to give life is through his own self-sacrificing death, his unending love. The life offered is the life given in such a magnetic and powerful way to the people who would follow Jesus. Are you with me? This is what we're talking about. We're talking about husbands and we're talking about the church. Verse 25, look what it says. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives are not instructed to love their husbands. Woo, yes. <laughs> I never want to do. Right, right, no, I'm just kidding. There are about three verses that instruct wives on how to, how to conduct themselves. And there are, depending on how you look at it, which we'll get to why it's sort of difficult to understand, there's probably anywhere from nine to 12 verses for husbands about how to love their wives. And the word love here is the same word, if you guys are familiar with the Bible, you grew up in the church, if you've ever read the verse John three sixteen, that word that God so loved the world is the same love being mentioned here that a husband ought to have for his wife. It is a self-sacrificing, unending, it is a generous, overarching, all-encompassing kind of love. Paul says, husbands, Love your wives like that. Because Christ loves the church in the same way, and he gave himself up for her. The way that this love will be evidenced is by the way in which you give yourself up for your wife. I'm not sure who has the harder job, wives or husbands. Now what I have to ask you is what are we talking about here? Next week, Mike's going to talk about marriage and some of the specifics, and I would say... Come, come and bring your friends. You're going to want to hear what he has to say about marriage specifically. But I think what I want to point out is this may not be about marriage today. This isn't a marriage talk. It's about something different. It's about living as a countercultural community. Look what it says to continue on in verse 25 through 27. I'll just kind of catch it again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up, to her, up, up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water and through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Maybe this is about Jesus and the church. But, but what Paul says here is that Jesus comes to the bride, us, the church, you, all of us, and he makes her radiant, He makes her beautiful. He doesn't say, when the bride is prepared and looks wonderful and beautiful, then I will come to her. He says, I come to the bride and I make her radiant. 
Next week, I'm doing a wedding for a guy who grew up in, um, he was part of the high school ministry when I was a high school pastor a long time ago at a different church even. And he, um, I was kind of explaining to him how he won't remember anything from his wedding. <laughs> I was like, looking at his wife, I'm like, Stephanie, I remember everything probably. But you, Brian, nothing. You only remember one thing. And all guys, know if you've ever been to a wedding, um, and, and I do a lot of weddings, so when you see, I've been to enough to know, I've seen a million brides come down the aisle, and they're, they're all, be, all of you. It's a moment, it's beautiful. <laughs> but the show is to watch the groom's reaction. Now what I would say to you, next time you go to a wedding, don't look first at the bride. Everyone's going to be doing one of these looking at the bride. Just watch the groom. You'll see, you'll have enough time. She walks all slow. Remember, step together, step together, whatever. You have plenty of time to see her. Watch the groom when that door opens and she comes out. It's like full-on thunderbolt, right in his face. I don't, that's not exactly how a thunderbolt sounds. I guess more like a whip. But either way, same idea. Now, brides, you guys, you guys get up at 4 a.m., and you have a professional makeup person show up at your house. And they apply makeup in 14 different layers of the airbrushes over seven hours. They prepare for you how you're going to look. And you wear the veil four or five hours too early. And all you do is walk around and get away from the veil. Get away. <laughs> Stay away from the veil. Can you get that away? Get your kid away from me. I lace flower girl. Or whatever. They're really pretty. Get them away from the veil my makeup. Okay, all morning. And everybody tolerates you because it's your day. It's really wonderful. You get to... Mm-hmm. Never, ever will I tolerate that from you again. This is your one chance. Magical day. Love it. Glad I'm here. And you, brides, you, you get these other women who have been so significant in your life, and you put them in the most hideous dresses <laughs> to try and make the, to, by contrast, make yourself look so much, you know, more radiant and beautiful than they are. And all the brides are like, no, we didn't do that. And all the bridesmaids in your wedding were like, yeah. Yeah, he made us buy the dumbest dress in the world, and we still have it in our closet, okay? Now, because you ask about it. Isn't it so cute that I bought you that dress? <laughs> you didn't buy it. I bought it, and it's in my closet, and I hate it. <laughs> now, the grooms, the gro- all the groom and the groomsmen, they're like, you know, they wake up with just barely enough time. That, you know, may- oh, you know what, let's, maybe we'll go play golf, or we'll go surf, or we'll do whatever, and, you know, and then we'll hang out, and we'll come back. If we got 20 minutes to shave and put our rented tuxedos on, you know, that'll be fine. And, you know, then all the guys stand up there, and they look like the men's warehouse quartet, you know, like... <laughs> rented tuxedos, and there they are, and sure enough, there's the moment, I'm right here doing this thing, holding my little notepad in my suit, I only own one suit that I bought five years ago, it looks like I bought it about 20 years ago, and I'm standing there, and there's the groom, and the door opens, and sure enough, you know, he's like, kind of all, you know, doing, like trying to act cool, whatever, and the second that door opens, beautiful, radiant bride, bam, emotion. Some guys cry, some guys try not to cry, some guys just smile, some guys literally have their mouth, like, they just are shocked. <laughs> Trust me, that's what you want to see at a wedding, okay? Now, what's happening and in what, in what Paul is saying is not the same as that moment. Because Paul's saying, the church is not already beautiful, it is made beautiful by the groom. The church is made radiant by the groom. The church is full of a bunch of people, the bride, us. We're kind of a wreck. We're kind of a mess. We don't do it all right and wonderful. But we're made radiant by the groom. Like I told you, next week, Mike's going to talk more about marriage, about what that looks like. But what we're talking about here, if you skip down in your Bible to verse 32, we're not talking about marriage. Look, what it, look, what, look what's said here. 
Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And he goes on to say, if you read the next verse, if you want to cheat, he just basically says, oh, and by the way, husbands, you should love your wives and wives respect, you know, submit to your husbands. He just kind of, well, what are we talking about, Paul? Are we talking about marriage? Are we talking about the church? He says, I'm talking about the church. And what he says is, the bride, that's us, submits to the authority who, of our husband, the groom, who is the source of all life, the one who loves us with an unending, whole, complete, and beautiful love, who gave everything that we might become radiant. What does this look like? First is this, I'm teaching my kids as best as I'm able to teach them how to do the, to say the Lord's Prayer, which is the Our Father, if you grew up in like a Catholic tradition. And so I'm teaching them how to, to say it. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of working through what, tra- what translation to go with because I learned it with our Father who art in heaven. If you read it in some of the other translations of the Bible, it just says, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. But I mean, we're working through it. And, and at one point it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on as it is in heaven. And what this is saying is, God, you have a way that you want to operate. And that prayer, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, is a prayer in which you are saying, God, that will, which is you have intended, I want it to be made real now, here in this world. And when we talk about submitting to the head, the source of our own life, the, the Savior, Jesus, this person, what we're actually saying is, I want to join you in what you're doing, God. I want to be a part of whatever it is where your will is being enacted in the world. I want to join it. Some of you are like, well, how do I, how do I know? What do I, what do I do? What do, I, do I wait for an email? Do I, is there, does, does Jesus write something in the fog, in the mirror, and I get out of the shop? How do I know what I'm supposed to do? I would say this. Jesus is really fond of kids. And what I would say is, most of us are too, we make ourselves too sophisticated in the figuring out what we're supposed to do with Jesus. And I would say, just begin to ask him the question, Jesus, I'm convinced you're, you're doing something in the world and I want to be a part of it. I don't know how to do it or what, how am I supposed to know what to do, but I want to. And I'm convinced that if you are able to say that prayer with honesty, that God will answer you, probably in a way that surprises you and probably in a way that only a six-year-old would probably get. But I'm convinced if you begin the conversation of, I'm sure you're doing something in the world, Jesus and I want to join you, that you'll be able to figure out what that is. Secondly, if you, as we sort of talk about what it looks like to sort of submit to the source of life, the husband, Jesus, to the bride, it'd be to ask ourselves the question, at least to put it in sort of ancient terms, if there's a throne governing your own life, who's on it? Is it you Or, like Paul says, do you willingly say to Jesus, the one who is the head, the one who has been granted all authority and power, who says, I will be for you the source of life that you had always hoped, the life that is life, as the Bible says, the life abundantly, or sometimes you might know it as eternal life, I will be that for you, but you have to let me sit on the throne. It is an act of submission for us, the church, to say, Jesus, you sit on the throne. You direct my life and I will join you in where you direct me to go. It is the most difficult thing. 
And lastly, I would say is this. If you're not sure about sort of how much of a willing submitter you are to God in your own life, what I would say is the first and best barometer of that is the nature of your own relationships with the people that are closest to you. Now, like, again, I, this isn't a marriage talk, but I can tell you that from my own life, my own marriage is the best indicator of how much I'm convinced that Jesus is on the throne of my own life. I don't know if you're like me. You're probably not as shallow as I am. But I, as a husband, am less interested, far less interested in loving my wife with the um, full-on self-sacrificing, give my own soul to rescue her kind of, I know that's sort of difficult for you to imagine, but this is actually where I am. And actually, what, I, what I'm most interested in is being fair. So I will see a, a sink full of dishes and a countertop full of apple juice and, you know, dried in, like, you know, oatmeal, which is like, they could, they could you could stucco a house with dried oatmeal. And... <laughs> All on the counter, and I will say, I did the dishes yesterday. Therefore, she should do it. That's fair. I'll say, I mowed the lawn in the front yard, and we don't have a big yard, but, you know, that's okay. I mowed the lawn, and there are toys that have to be picked up that my kids have left out, but she should do that because that's fair. And then I'll say, you know, wow, I didn't get to go, you know, surf with my buddies or play basketball. Or do it. I didn't get to go do those things that I really wanted to do. And sure, it was probably the right call, but I didn't get to do that. So when she has an opportunity to go out with her own friends, which makes sense, and I'll take the kids for the... No, probably not, because that's fair. I didn't get to, so you shouldn't be able to. When I'm not receiving affection, attention, admiration, respect, which I know, how could you not stop showering it upon me after you hear these kinds of stories? But when I'm not receiving those kinds of things from my wife, why should I shower upon her attention and love and time and listening? Because that's fair. Folks, what Jesus is calling us to, what Paul is writing about, it's a life in which we say, I'm going to submit to Jesus, the one who I give the throne of my life and to the other people in my life because that is the most countercultural revolutionary idea in the Bible. To give up power that you have. What I want to do is this. The ushers are going to come down. We're going to take communion. And what we're going to do is... Um, I'm going to give you, this is a little bit tricky, so the ushers are going to go to the back there and grab some communion stuff. What I want to do is this. I'm going to say this now. What I want you to do is just begin to think about these things. And if, if it was more practical, I'd have you close your eyes, but because you're going to be passing stuff in a little bit, I can't have you do that. So I want you just, you're going to have to use your superior powers of focus and concentration. Now, what I want you to do is this. First, I want to ask you who is on the throne of your own life. Maybe in these moments where things are being passed out and you're going to hear um, Ethan begin to play in a moment, where in your life do you notice who's on the throne? You, in your own evaluation, you can, yeah, you can begin passing that stuff out. Who's on the throne of your life? Secondly, let me ask you, do you want to join God in where he's already working? We're operating under the assumption that God is already working in your life and around you, that his will is being enacted in the world and you want to join him. Maybe he's nudging you in a way that you already know, that you've been sort of dismissing. What does it look like to join him? As you get the elements, hold on to them. Don't take them yet. Just hold on to them for a second. We'll take them for a moment. And then lastly, as you think about what it means to submit to Christ, the one who submitted 
in his own death to God's will. What's the barometer like on your own submission to other people, the ones that are closest to you in your life? So hold these elements for a moment, and then once everybody receives the communion elements, we'll take communion together as a family. So just hold on to these and wrestle with some of these questions, and then we'll take communion together in a moment.